Welcome to 54 Live, your live golf podcast. This is Jake up in this biash, having a wonderful, amazing day. Just wanted to get up in here and talk to you guys. This is going to be a different paced conversation as Digsy is off pimping like a rock star in Pinehurst, doing all those wonderful things, making sure that he breaks 100 like a champ. By the way, guys, before you start going, oh man, Digsy can barely break 100. What are you talking about? He's playing at Pinehurst number two, okay? A course that you and I both know that the majority of golfers in the world would struggle to break 120 at. Diggsy went down there, cold cocked it, shot a 97, and is looking like a champ. Kicking back with a cigar right now. He's icing his paws, and he got no bear claws. Good job, Diggsy. You good-looking son of a gun. Guys, we have a lot to talk about with golf today. So we are going to be basically just hanging out, having some fun. So sit back, relax, get yourself a cocktail, get yourself a bottle of whiskey, maybe two bottles of whiskey, maybe change it out for some wine because, you know, you need to cut back on the carbs. I don't know what your life looks like. I know what mine looks like. I got my coffee next to me. I'm pulling that Phil Mickelson diet right now because I'm trying to get in beach bod shape because I want to have me some big Brooks energy. That's right. I had to do a clap right there. So I'm going to basically keep this light and simple. First off, before we do anything else, I want to say congratulations to Brooks Kepka on his fifth major championship. But as of filming, Sergio Garcia has finished the longest day of golf and has just on the 36th hole, his last hole of the day, birdied. He has secured his spot in the U.S. Open, the 12th live golfer to secure his spot in the U.S. Open. He did it through U.S. Open qualifying. He played today, played in the Dallas sectional final, which was a stacked field, a stacked field. Um, Three live golfers currently were involved in there. Also, uh, many other great names that you know. So So Sergio... Um, Graham McDowell and, uh, Brandon Grace were all there. All three were guys that I thought honestly could have made it. Graham McDowell went bogey bogey on his last two holes to miss out. So kind of pissed for him, kind of pissed at him. Not really. Life happens, bro. I'm so sorry. I really wanted him to qualify because I knew that that would be a huge confidence booster to him. Um, but life happens. Other guys in the field that missed out, by the way, lots of players missed out. Uh, Ryan Palmer and Ryan Moore, uh, Michael Kim, the PGA player. Um, we saw Yannick Paul, who is a big time player over there in Germany, one of the Germans that are coming out of the DP World Tour. Martin Laird, Caleb Scott, who is a young upstart. Uh, Will Gordon was there. I also saw on the list, uh, let's see, ooh, um, well, so my, my two good people that I really know very well were also there that missed out. Um, Greg Yates and, and, Rooting for that guy ever since we were, we were in juniors together. Uh, he missed out. Feel really bad for him. And then Clark Dennis, who is a senior tour player, who is actually going to be watching him this week over in Dallas at PGA West on the champions, uh, on the, on the, on the senior PGA championship, which is one of the senior tour majors. So I'll be watching him on Thursday. Excited to see him. Thank you for the hookup, my dude. You rock. Um, but yeah, dude, stacked field, stacked field. Uh, Brandon Grace pulled out. Because uh, he realized that, you know, toward the back nine, he wasn't going to make it, which I totally understand. Lots of players, you know, will do that in qualifying when, especially when they have a tournament this week. So, you know, for Sergio, for Graham and for Brandon to all do this immediately after 
um, you know, immediately preceding uh, the week in DC, because this week Live Golf goes to DC. I am super pumped, super excited, and just super thankful that uh, Sergio did make qualifying. He, he was right on that cut line where if he had stayed at eight under, which is where he was at prior to the birdie, if he had stayed there, he would have had to be in a playoff. And a playoff, you know, you might secure your spot, you might not. Um, but he made sure to secure that bag with a birdie. So good job, Sergio Garcia. Congratulations, you son of a gun. So back to the PGA. The PGA Championship had so many cool, cruel, and unusual storylines this year. Obviously, after round one, we saw Bryson DeChambeau coming out, you know, strong. We saw DJ coming out strong. Uh, and, you know, DJ did fade throughout the week. Bryson, really excited for him to see him put together a full week in a major championship. Just seeing him be able to stand up under pressure throughout the week and, and really keep his game together on a course that was unrelenting, unforgiving, and just freaking mean. I mean, we saw Brandon Steele fall apart at the end and miss the cut. We saw Waco miss the cut. Taylor Gooch missed the cut. Abe Answer missed the cut. And I understand, like, Waco and Abe Answer are guys for live that have exemptions into all majors this year, and they didn't make the cut. But guess who did make the cut? C1 Kim. Our boy, Mr. 48 himself, made the cut. And he did it in pretty good fashion. I mean, he played... Understand, it's a par 70 course, and he broke 75 all four rounds. Congratulate. No, he didn't, actually. There was one round he did. There was two rounds he did. Oh, sorry. The, the third round, he did not. He shot like eight over. No, sorry. He shot He shot five over on the first round, three under on the second round, and then he shot six over on the third round, and then three over on the, on the fourth round. So he had one round... He had 170, he shot 75, 67, then 70 something, then 76, then 73. Overall, though, a great week. He actually beat quite a lot of players just making the cut. But I mean, even the players that made the cut, like he beat out Taylor Montgomery, who is one of the top putters on the PGA Tour this year. He beat Justin Thomas. In a four-round event. He beat Justin Thomas this week by, by one stroke in all four rounds. I am super surprised. Did not see that coming at all. I mean, this was a guy who had zero reason for you to believe anything was going good about his game. He beat Tony Finau by by six shots. Sorry, no, five, four shots. He beat Tony Finau by four shots. Are you kidding me? Did not see that one coming. Siwon Kim, you surprise me. Guys, this was an amazing event because it was looking like Scotty Scheffler was in control after round two. You know, Bryson had a little bit of a slip up, a little bit of a hiccup. You could tell this course was not going to give up a low number, right? This course was, it's a PGA championship, but it was playing, behaving, and acting like it was a U.S. Open in a lot of ways. Now, seeing that, I hope the U.S. Open takes this really, really tough course tough situation and just says, hey, we're going to one-up it even more. We're going to go ham hock, full tilt, and make this the most miserable experience ever and ramp it up. Because the winner was at, was still at 9-under because Brooks Kepka had a rough round in round one. I think a lot of that was due to Scotty Scheffler's pace 
I think him and Gary Woodland took him in the bathroom after round one and basically beat the living crap out of him because he came back the very next day with a whole different vibe, a whole different candor, and Brooks took him to the woodshed on round two. <laughs> no, I, I mean, Brooks did beat him by two strokes on round two, um, but you could tell there was definitely more positive movement, uh, less awkward, long pauses between shots that really created problems. And you could see Brooks from round two onward just in control. He fires a four under low round of the day on, on Friday, a four under low round of the day on, on Saturday. And then Sunday, playing at the very end of the afternoon, shoots a three under, which, you know, Scotty Scheffler did shoot a five under. There were lots of five unders actually on um, Sunday, which was the low round of the week, but it made sense. It was the best conditions of the week. Uh, still moist from the weekend rain, but, you know, drier, no wind. The course was playing at a, it was still playing defensive, but it was a lower defense than it had been. So Scotty Scheffler, Cam Davis, Kurt Kitayama, Seb Straka, and uh, Cameron Smith all shot five under par on that last round, making a huge, huge swing of things. Um, showing that the course could be birdied, that things could happen. But Brooks Kepka, man, you know, when he, when he's in, in control, he's in control. And I think he mentioned this in a press conference going into uh, at the end of uh, round three. He really said that he learned what he did wrong at Augusta and he was going to make things right and take the trophy home. And it was very evident throughout the entire round. There were obviously times where Hoblin was threatening, where Connors was still in the mix, um, where the er, the Chargers were starting to come up out of the woodworks, you know, Scotty Scheffler was starting to get close. Scotty Scheffler made a good post into the clubhouse to get to seven under. Things were getting interesting, right? But Brooks just looked calm, composed, and collected. And I think the big thing that he really learned, that he really learned and learned how to understand and control better here versus that he did at Augusta, was he learned to control the pace. He learned to control what was going on. What was happening? Who went hit the shot? When did they hit the shot? How they hit the shot? And realistically, he, you could tell he was struggling with Scotty because Scotty is an oblivious persona, somebody that really doesn't uh, get phased or confused or, or ripped on or anything of that nature. Somebody that you really can't phase up the same kind of way. But... We saw that once round two happened, and then round three with Bryson, which Bryson is a bro, and Bryson plays at a pretty quick pace also. Very methodical pace, but it is still a quick pace. And also, Bryson is somebody who adapts to whoever he's playing with. He plays like whoever he's playing around or pre playing practice rounds with. So it's a little bit easier to manipulate Bryson to play a, like your style or like your pace, and then Victor Hovland is also a very fast player. So Brooks had the best possible pairings for round three and four, in my opinion. I mean, he didn't have a Patrick Cantlay. He didn't have a Scotty Scheffler. Even though by round two, it was very clear that he was in control of Scotty Scheffler. He had put his influence on him enough. Um, but he wasn't playing with a John Rahm whom he could not control. He, he wasn't playing with Patrick Cantlay whom he would have choked the living crap out of. Um, he wasn't playing with any of those kind of players who would really either be oblivious to his pace 
or his desired pace or his or his moat or his vibe or what he was what he's trying to do as far as setting the stage. He was playing with players in round three and four that he had control over, that he had influence over how they played in pace. And like I said, by round by the end of round two, it was very obvious that he was in control of Scotty Scheffler. Gary Woodland is somebody that he was also playing with Gary Woodland, which by the way, if you didn't know, he played with Gary Woodland on the first two rounds of the Masters. And he may have played with him in the third round also. I don't necessarily remember his third round pairing. The pairings for the Masters were so wacky because of just how everything was out of whack with weather that whole entire Masters week. But um, for the Masters round one and two, he's playing with Gary Woodland also. And Gary Woodland does also seem like a player that very much falls in line with Brooks Kepka's influence and what he wants to do. So somebody that you know for a fact wasn't going to cause Brooks any problems. Um, definitely, in a lot of ways, Gary Woodland feels like somebody who would want to come to live golf at some point. So again, keep your eyes out for that. I, I don't know who he would want to join up with, whom would want to join him up to have him join up with them, but he is somebody that a lot of his vibe feels very much live golfish. Um, he's out of favor, out of, out of form. He's not challenging every week on the PGA Tour. Still has a name. Still has championship exemptions. So keep an eye out on that. But like I said, Brooks just was dominant from round two onwards. It just seemed like he could do no wrong. And it was it was just showing up, man. I mean, the amount of birdies that he had, like on Sunday, for instance, the guy had seven birdies on Sunday. Yes, he had, you know, four bogeys, but seven birdies on that course is insane. The very the course to me was very interesting, though, because the course was set up to where you really only you're obviously you can birdie any hole if you have the exact right shot, right? But the course was set up to where both nines, both nine hole stretches, the first three holes or four holes of both sides were really your only chances for your only major chances for birdie. And so it was basically birdie as hard as you can those first three or four holes and then hold on for dear life on the next five. And that's where everyone got messed up. We saw this with Thomas Peters. I think Thomas Peters played the first four holes of the golf course, like 12 under par this week. So yeah, round one, round one, first five holes. Let's let's just say five holes because it is a par five. Not that's you know manageable. So first five holes, first round one under par, second round two under par. So now he's three under par total. Third round four under par. So now he's seven under par total. Fourth round one under par. So he played the first five holes at eight under par that week. He finished the whole entire tournament at six over par. That just shows you how this golf course was playing. It was birdie early, birdie often, and then hold on for dear life. So that was something that was really interesting is that as you watched on Sunday, like I said, Brooks is in the middle of the tough stretch while the people a few groups ahead of him are in the birdie stretch. And so you're watching this and you're like, oh my gosh, his lead is breaking. His lead is breaking. His lead is breaking. But realistically, if you really watched it through the understanding of what was going on with that course, you saw hold up now. This is the part where the gap shortens because Brooks is playing bogey holes or par holes and they're playing birdie holes, but they're going to be out of birdie holes before Brooks is there. And that's exactly what happened. 
Um, it was never a situation where you felt like Brooks was losing control of this golf course. And it showed up because, you know, he bogeyed, sorry, he birdied number 16, which was not one of the birdie holes this week. Great play out of him overall. Live Golfers um, did make up a very high percentage of the top 10, again, um, as you had Bryson, you had Cam Smith in the top 10 with a nice 500 par in the last round. It was very exciting to see this because once again, uh, the OWGR was proven pretty much irrelevant. And I'll be bringing a conversation video on my YouTube channel later about TUGR versus OWGR. Which one is more correct? How should they change things later? But I want to stay on topic with everything like this. I mean, this was super special to see. We have our first non-PGA Tour champion uh, for a major in a, in a long, long time. And understand this. This is a big, big deal to look into because really... The PGA Tour has had, in some type of way, control or management of pretty much every major champion for, what, the last 20-something years, mostly? I understand. I mean, you know, last 20-something years, yeah, there have been guys, there have been Europeans who have been winning champ like major championships, but they're Europeans who have either immediately defected to the to PGA Tour versus DP World Tour, or um, they are basically already doing half and half, kind of like Rory, where they're doing their absolute minimum requirements with the DP World Tour while mostly staying in America to play on the PGA Tour. And so this was really the first time in a long time that I can remember where a truly non-PGA Tour player won a major. Now think about that. When was the last time that a real, that a true non-PGA Tour player won a major championship? I mean, I think you have to go mentally all the way back to like Nick Faldo, Greg Norman, which you know, Greg Norman still played on the PGA Tour. So, um, really, just Nick Faldo would be like the oldest one that I can think of. Um, maybe, uh, trying to think of, uh, whew. I mean, that's really, that's really the oldest one I can think of, uh, the Bernard longer years. Cause he really didn't play on the PGA tour. He was very loyal to the, the European tour. We have the, you know, the Seve Ballesteros we have, uh, Ian Woosnam. Um, but those, that's really, that's how far back you have to go to really think about like somebody at least off the cusp of memory, that was a true Europe non-PGA Tour player winning a major championship. It's really cool to see because how does the PGA Tour handle this? What do they do? Do they incentivize X, Y, or Z? Do they throw a bunch of money? Well, they can't throw a bunch of money because, by the way, a friend of mine uh, saw him. Uh, Flushing It has a friend. Flushing It Golf has a friend um, who apparently was talking about how, with the win, Brooks Kepka's franchise, Smash GC, has a valuation of roughly $2 billion. So if, just so you understand, the minimum incentivized ownership percentage that's been leaked or talked about for the captains of Live Golf is 25% ownership stake of their team. At a valuation of $2 billion, that makes Brooks Kepka's ownership equity, assuming he only has 25% at dun 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 
$500 million. $500 million. That is right. $500 million is roughly the valuation of Brooks Kepka's ownership equity in his franchise, Smash GC, assuming that he only has a 25% um, ownership equity. Now, he also got a $1 million bonus from Live Golf itself for winning a major. If you guys didn't know this, that's actually a, a clause in their contracts for Live Golfers that because if they do show up and win a major, they get extra money. So he won the money for winning the, winning the PGA, and now he also gets a $1 million bonus from Live Golf. So Brooks is having a pretty good week. Um, safe to say, don't bound him for to do well in D.C., because the homeboy is partying right now. <laughs> no, um, this will be, this is huge news, right? Um, obviously, I think that Brooks Kepka doing this forces the, the major championships to really reevaluate how they hand out special invites and really force the OWGR to really have a conversation about what do they do going forward. Do we start seeing invites catered solely for live players? People like Taylor Gooch, people like Charles Howell III, who many people argue should have been at the Masters um, because of his early season showing in Mayakoba and then again in Tucson. Uh, even players like Peter Uline. You know, what do we see going forward for these players, right? This is a serious conversation point. Obviously, they can still do qualifying for uh, the Open Championship for the U.S. Open, but should they have to? Should they have to? Thankfully, players in situations like the like the Masters have been most lenient or most accepting of special exemption invitations, such as we saw with Kazuki Higa, who was a prior to the start of this year a solely Asian Tour player, but has since been seen at several majors and several special exemptions onto the uh, PGA Tour. As essentially, he's been adopted in a lot of ways at this point. Also, he's been on DP World Tour events. His, his basically a lot of that happened because his, his world ranking points had reached a high enough spot outside of not being in any of those events to actually get into those events. Very special for him because it's almost impossible now for an Asian tour player to do that. Or sorry, he wasn't Asian tour. He was he was Japanese tour. I apologize. Forgive me. It's hard to keep track of everything. <laughs> no, but I'm super pumped, guys. We we have our first live champion of a math of a major. And that's really special. Brooks Kepka, by the way, third win in roughly seven months. And he is just looking like he's in big game hunter form. Many people are talking on the internet as if he'll win at least one more major this year. I, I would expect it to be the, the, the U.S. Open would be the one that I would bet on him to win. He's historically not done very well at the, at the, at the Open Championship, the British Open. He just historically has not done as well there. He has a couple top 25s, but it's not, it's not the same as the U.S. Open, PGA, and Masters. At those three events, he's just in big game hunter form. He hasn't gotten the green jacket yet, but he's had two second place finishes. And not only that, but I mean, he just, you know, you can tell when somebody has control of a course or control of a vibe, and he just doesn't have that control so far to date at the Open Championship. It's been the vibe of other players, players who are better at playing when things are just horrible all over. However, his victory this week at the PGA shows that he can play amazing when it's horrible. His week at Augusta shows that he can play amazing when it's horrible. 
So maybe he's finally ready to take on and win the Open Championship. I would put his odds much better at the U.S. Open, even though Max Homa has the course record at the course they're playing at, L.A. Country Club. I just We haven't seen Max Homa perform well at a major yet, but this would be the major that I would bet on Max Homa to come out of his shell. It's hard to really look past course legacy and history, and so I still think that Brooks is more likely to win the U.S. Open than the British, but it's definitely going to be an interesting one to watch as the Kings of California will be there ready to fight. By the way, shout out to Michael Block, who uh, is playing in the Charles Swap Challenge, which, by the way, is the Colonial. That's actually what we call it. It is not the Charles Swab Challenge. Stop trying to shove your sponsors in our throat, PGA Tour. It is the Colonial, the Ben Hogan Legacy Tournament, which is this week in Fort Worth. However, I will not be at that event because the exact same week in Frisco, Texas, at PGA West, which is a brand new PGA of America headquarters, they are having the PGA, the Senior PGA Championship. So I will be out there on Thursday, I'm probably following Clark Dennis's group because he's a friend um, my, my dad plays it, plays with him, some, not, not plays with him, but watches him practice sometimes at a country club. And so we have opportunity to go and watch and support him and root on for our, for, you know, a neighbor, which is pretty cool. Good guy. But yeah, I'm excited for this. Michael Block is, you know, a really amazing story when you think about it. He's a guy who's dominated his section of the PGA of America. You know, he has like 40, he's like 42 wins on the Northern California or uh, whatever section of California tour that he plays on. 42 wins in his long story career. Um, he does now have a, he made a bunch of money, by the way. They, they did the math on how much it would have taken it, how long it would take him to, uh, how many lessons he'd have to give in order to get the money that he won from this event. And it was like, over a thousand lessons. The dude just is in a good spot right now. He's pretty happy. What are the odds that he actually stay, finds a way to stay on the PGA Tour? Remember, this is a week after a major, so a lot of the big players are not going to be present. So it's going to be a very, very weak PGA field this week um, by comparison to a normal PGA week. However, it's not going to be a major, so it's going to be a course that you know is designed to be a little bit nicer. Um, it's not going to be one of those where you can shoot four, you know, 70s and, and finish in the top 15. At least I don't think so. So we'll see what happens with Michael. Can he actually go low, low? We know he's good enough to win sectional events of the PGA. We know he's good enough um, to do well at a major. Will he have another storied week? We will find out. So congrats to him. Congrats to everybody who played at the major this week. This was special. It was special for so many different reasons. Because the story was there, the conversation was there, and now we have to talk about the Ryder Cup situation. Mr. Simp Salad, Zach Johnson, are you going to let Brooks Kepka on the Ryder Cup team? Or are you going to be a Brandel Shambly and find every excuse under the book to not let in the best golfer in America on that list? And yes, I said the best American golfer. Um, obviously... When I think of the rankings right now, and my friend Big Boy Pants and I were talking yesterday off Twitter um, in our private DMs. Yo, what's up, my boy? <laughs> but anyway, we were talking about this. And when you think of rankings, like the rankings, T-U-G-R, O-W-G-R, you know, Brooks Koepka is like 30, 
something like 30th, I think, in TUGR, OWGR because they rank the majors so much more stronger than everything else. Uh, he is now 13th in the world, but obviously players like Will Zalatoris should have been expunged from, from the should have been pulled from the from the world ranking list immediately once he announced that he was done for the year. I, I think that's I think it's stupid to to, lead, to actually have the rankings still showing him up there that high because we both we all know that he is not the number ten player in the world right now. Um, he, he, he's he, what he is is bedridden and and injury prone and his career is over. But anyway, um, back to the important point is Zach Johnson is going to have a tough choice to make because. There are really three three players in the world right now that I think are considerable for number one in the world, and that is John Rahm, that is Scotty Scheffler, and that is Brooks Kepka. In fact, the TUGR actually mentioned this this past week in a tweet explaining why he was so low in the 30th spot. They explained if you look at just the past three months, just the past three months, then Brooks Kepka is number one in the world. He is number one in the world on the last three months. But when you look at the scope of the entire year, Brooks Kepka is still only 30th. And a lot of that has to do with just more of a, uh, of this, that, or the other. Um, you know, Ron obviously had a, a really hot fall and early winter. And then, of course, Max Homa had a really good fall. And then you have players like uh, Dustin Johnson who went up in the rankings because it removed like a missed cut from the U.S. Open because now there was no more like it, a bad a bad event fell off their record for the last 12 months. So it's it's very interesting to see this right now because to me the TUGR is closer to being true overall overall, but it's weird to notice how rankings are so reactionary rather than. Uh, proactive as far as creating what really happens, you know, what really is the story, what really is what we're looking at right there. They really are reactionary. We're seeing, like I said, Brooks Kepka still outside of the top 10 in the OWGR, even though they weight majors so heavily. And we're seeing Brooks Kepka in the outside the top 25 on the TUGR, despite the fact that they're on strokes gained. So it's a very wacky situation to look at. Hopefully being now that Brooks, um, Cam, and Dustin Johnson are higher up from their performances and or just the way the, the TUGR moved uh, after maybe the DC event, we'll see Brooks Kepka go up. But I also don't expect Brooks Kepka to play very well. In fact, I don't expect... I expect the winner of this DC event... To, to not even be somebody who is um, on anybody's radar to win right now. And the reason why I say that is because, obviously, with the live players, uh, there were you know 16 that played uh, this week. Paul Casey pulled out for an injury, and then also Martin Keimer pulled out for recovery. So, you know, we'll see. hopefully see Paul Casey and Martin Keimer back this week. Uh, Martin Keimer's was more of a precautionary thing. If he just needed a week of rest for playing two weeks in a row. Um, and then, and then, uh, with, uh, with Paul Casey, it was, we don't know the full extent of it. So he may actually be out for this event this week in DC. We'll have to keep an eye on it. If he does pull out, um, hopefully Andy Ogletree will step in and play for the crushers again. Uh, I do like to see players playing for the same team over and over again. 
Sadly, Ogletree has already played for two different teams, the Crushers, and then he had that awesome 62 last on the final round over in Tulsa for the Majestics. But we'll see what happens. Um, but yeah, when it comes to who will win in D.C., there's a lot of players in the pool, obviously. But um, we saw, like I said, a 36-hole play today for Sergio, for Graham McDowell, and for um, Brandon Grace. Uh, I don't expect any of those three to do well in in D.C. simply because of that. You know, they're getting into D.C. at best this evening, probably on a private jet. They probably are all pl- flying together this evening, but you never know. Uh, they might have Wade Ormsby with him. He, he, they also, he also played there as well. And he's usually, I've heard, has been on several events as a standby reserve in case of injury. Um, well, we'll see, you know, it's going to be very interesting to see how that goes down. The other players that played at the PGA championship, you know, we know Brooks Kepka was hung over today. <laughs> uh, we know that a lot of the other players are going to be, they're going to have that rust from the, from a major, you know, we saw this a little bit with Adelaide where, you know, they're coming back. They've played, they just played uh, a major and they had a week off after that, but you get what I'm saying. It's, it's tough to play a major, and especially a tough major like that one where the course is just eating people's souls, and then come back and play well. Um, so it's hard to bet on somebody really coming out strong that played in those. If I had to pick somebody, I would pick either Bryson, since he's moving into form. You know, Cam Smith would also be a solid pick, because again, he's still in form. Um, and then Harold Varner the third. I think he played very solidly out there, and he should. And I think he's just due for a win, man. He's somebody who so close so often, uh, and I just want to see him get some wins on his record belt, man. It's, it's. I want that for the guy, and he's such a good guy, and I want him to get some wins. Um, but that's really what we're looking at right here, guys. We're looking at a great event over at uh, Trump. Uh, Trump DC, Trump Internet, Trump is it Trump National? It's Trump, it's Trump National, which is at you know Washington DC. It's going to be a a really cool course layout. I don't know much about it overall because I I'm so I'm still just just reeling and ripping from the, from this event. Um, and it's just it's going to be a rough one. I know because anything that anything any course that has the word Trump in front of it is a tough course to play. It is a tough course to play. He doesn't. You know, he doesn't put him, put his name on any of these, you know, go out and shoot 20 under par in three rounds courses. So it could be a very tough event. And I, I'll, I'm willing to put money on that the winner is somebody who was not present. Um, so as far as picks go, as far as picks go, I am going to, to, to still pick, uh, Cam Smith. He looked really good in form in Tulsa, very sharp in, um, at Oak Hill. PGA. And he's just, he's somebody whom I think is moving in the right direction with his game, getting his candor up, his dander up in time for the third major. Um, we'll see what happens there. But yeah, Cam Smith is one that I would definitely still consider betting on this week. I'm definitely uh, in on, I, I just feel, I, I really do, man. I, I feel like somebody from the Majestics is going to have to step up. Uh, I don't know who that is. 
right this week. I'm not feeling confident enough to put money on any of them since Lee Westwood is coming back from an injury, uh, since Ian Poulter is still just all over the place. And, you know, and, and Stenson is just, he's playing good golf, but he's not playing championship winning golf. So I just don't, I can't pick any of those guys. So who do I pick? Who do I pick outside of that? Who are the four that I pick outside of that? Uh, I'm going to take a leap of faith and say Jason Kokrak. I'm going to take a leap of faith and say Bernd Wiesberger. I just feel like he's gotten himself in contention for enough holes to show to me that he has the game to, to finally break out and have something happen. Abraham Answer missed the cut this week. I feel like he's going to come back with a vengeance. So he missed the cut at the PGA. I feel like this is a week that he comes back hard and makes something happen. His game is tight when he's on, but he's been off for a few weeks as far as his game goes. So I think this is a week that he finally gets his salad right, right? This is a week that he gets going in the right direction. And then the fifth pick, uh, the fifth pick for me has got to be mm, tough one to go off of, but I'm, I'm feeling it. I'm feeling that we're going to see a uh, triangle get in there. Cameron Tringali. Cameron Tringali has been somebody uh, threatening leaderboards. Hasn't quite gotten himself to secure the bag, but I feel like this is the time. This is the moment. This is the spot where he finally, you know, becomes a winner, steps into the winner circle. So that's the five that I'm betting on this week. I'm betting on Cam Smith. I'm betting on Cameron Tringali. I'm betting on Abraham Anser, Bernd Wiesberger, and um, ooh, did I already forget the fifth guy I was betting on? Wow, that's pretty embarrassing. Jason Kokrak. So yeah, Jason Kokrak, Cam Smith, Cameron Tringali, Bernd Wiesberger, and Abraham Answer. That's who I'm going with for my five. Guys, what do you think? Look, this has been a different pace podcast this this week. Uh, it's a little, little different whenever you have just yourself talking into a microphone for 40 minutes without trying to take a sip of that awesome coffee that I can smell the entire time getting my dander up, my gander up. But guys, let's, let me know what you think. Talk to us on Twitter. As always, you can look, find me and Digsies off our 54 live page. Just being able to just talk about whatever we want to talk about. Cause guys, there is so much going on in golf, in live golf, in all of these things. And we just want to connect with you and have a conversation because the conversation only gets better when you're involved. Have a wonderful day. Make sure to have a good time. And as always, get ready to tune in for some awesome epicness on Friday. Friday, it goes down at Trump, at Trump National at DC. It's going to be a huge event. I think that it's going to be an event where we see, like said, somebody who hasn't broken through yet break through. Uh, Cam Smith obviously has previously. He's the only person that I has won one previously that I'm betting on. The other four that I'm betting on are guys that will be first time live winners and people that I think are due for an opportunity. As always, guys, have a wonderful day. Talk to you soon. We are out.